From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, a tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. We've got Father John Tregilio. It looks like he's coming to us live from San Quentin, maybe. But uh, he's got the, the brick wall behind him there. But uh, if you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff, well, actually, Ace McKay is our celebrity social media maven today. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father John Tregilio, where in the world are you? I'm in Flemington, New Jersey today. Okay, very good. Got the painted cinder block wall behind you. I thought maybe you had you had gone one step too far over the line finally. Well, I do have relatives in the big house. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, got an email here from uh, Les or from Lee, excuse me. How are we supposed to reconcile my yoke is easy and my burden is light with the idea of taking up your cross? Oh, I'm glad they asked that, because that was what I preached about on this past Sunday. Um, you know, when I went to Sicily to visit my relatives, I was watching a farmer uh, literally put a yoke on two oxen, and it sort of like clicked when I saw that, because I've always heard the, the passage from the, from the gospel, my yoke is easy by burden and light, but then I realized, what's the purpose of the yoke? The yoke isn't there to oppress the animal, it's there to help the animal. The yoke allows two animals to share the burden so that not one of them is doing all of it or even more. They, they equally distribute the, the task that's being done. And so when Jesus says his yoke is easy, he's saying he's there right next to us sharing our burdens. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, it's not just that we're walking behind, but literally he's walking beside us. He's helping us bear that cross uh, as a yoke. And so his yoke is easy, his burden light, when you look at it in this perspective that he's done all the, the, the main stuff. He's done the hard work. You know, he died on the cross. He it was crucified. He had his uh, passion, his um, scourging and the crown of thorns and that. So in comparison, our suffering is is very small, and yet we can unite our suffering with his, and then it becomes salvific uh, suffering because of that idea of the yoke. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Father, we're going to break from protocol here a little bit. Uh, I've got uh, Oakba Marion in Des Moines, Iowa, who's been holding over since the end of the final of the last program. So, Oakba Marion, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Thanks for holding. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. What's your question Uh, today? My question is... um, I have a informative speech assignment next Thursday, so I want to give a, a brief information about Catholic, Catholic, Catholicism. So, where can I go to get uh, uh, information, a brief information about the Catholic Church? Okay. Uh, well, um, I would say you know there's a lot of material available. You could go on online. EWTN has a electronic uh, library section. Um, the book that Father Briganti and I wrote, Catholicism for Dummies, uh, is not only in print, but also uh, there's electronic version. Uh, that's an introduction uh, to Catholicism. So uh, if you want just a broad overview, because although, I mean, the catechism is, is great, and it tells you what the Church teaches, it tells you uh, how the church celebrates liturgically, it tells you, you know, um, our moral stand and our prayer life. Uh, it is big, and uh, it may not be something you can digest in just one or two settings, but certainly something that, you know, that's the whole premise of, of the idea of, 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 of a dummy's book, that you don't have to be an expert uh, to read and understand it. But uh, there's so many things that are available, at, like I said, at the EWTN uh, electronic library as well. Um, so I ju- you want a broad overview. Um, definitely want to make sure that uh, whatever you read is kosher, as we would say. Uh, that's why our, our book has a imprimatur, which means there's nothing against faith or morals in there. It's been uh, sanctioned uh, uh, by, uh, by a bishop of the, uh, of, of, of the Catholic Church. God bless you, Obak Marion. We appreciate the phone call today. Uh, Jim writes in, are the souls of the dead aware of what occurs here amongst the living? Uh, we believe so, because one of our dogmas is what we call the communion of saints, so that although we certainly believe that they still exist, their, their souls, whether they're in purgatory or in heaven, still exist, be, of this idea of the communion, uh, all the dead except you know, we don't know about the, the ones who, God forbid, would be in hell. But the souls of purgatory, the souls in heaven, and those of us living here on earth, uh, we make up the um, community of saints. We have the church militant, which those of us here on earth, the church triumphant, the souls in heaven, and the church suffering, those in purgatory. Uh, we believe that somehow God um, infuses into their intellects uh, knowledge so that they know what's going on, because obviously without bodies, they can't see or hear, literally. They need another way of knowing things, and so God can infuse knowledge into them. So that's why we believe when you uh, pray for the souls of purgatory, they can also pray for you, and in order for them to pray for you, they have to know you know, who you are, and th- therefore it's um, reasonable and rational to think that somehow God lets them know what's going on in our lives. Uh, Robert would like to know, why are the saints' bodies split up into relics and sent around to be reverenced? <laughs> well, I know some, some people wonder about that, and they think it's a little macabre. Um, but realize, too, 
that uh, the relics of the saints, these are, um, especially today, they're very strict on uh, how you access them. Um, in previous eras, it was much easier to acquire um, relics, but now the Church is very strict. You need to have a bishop write to Rome on official stationery with the diocesan seal, and then they will give uh, uh, a relic, which is first-class relic is an actual part of the body of the saint. Uh, Second-class is something that they wore or used, and the third-class is usually a piece of material touched to a first-class relic. Um, the whole purpose of having relics is that it connects us with the the person uh, who you know that was once part of their 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 body in the same way that you and I would keep things that belong to our loved ones. You know, my mom and dad are dead, but uh, you know we keep not just pictures of them, but um, I wear around my neck my dad's uh, wedding ring uh, because that's a nice connection with him. Um, I don't have any first-class relics because, again, a relic, technically speaking, is only from someone who's been uh, designated as a saint or someone who's been beatified. Um, but this connection, tangibly, because we're body and soul, is why we can uh, venerate uh, their relics, not as a superstitious, magical talisman or lucky charm, but just because uh, these are people who are friends with God, especially a saint is someone that we have asserted to that they're in heaven. And we've got, there's some scriptural support for this, huh? In the in the Acts of the Apostles especially? Yes, I mean, you know, there, there, there was the practice of, of you know, having the, the like, the bones of, of Joseph. Uh, that's even in the Old Testament, uh, when the Israelites left the slavery of Egypt, they took with them uh, the bones of Joseph, you know, who was the one who... Um, uh, help the the Hebrews um, escape uh, the the famine that hit all of Egypt and the Holy Land. And uh, in New Testament times, you know, they too, you know, they they regard they kept those things which not just reminded them but connected them uh, with people like Saint Paul, Saint Peter, uh, the other apostles. Now, the only relics that we would not have of a person would be obviously Jesus because he um, ascended into heaven. But uh, and the Blessed Mother was assumed up into heaven. But everybody else, you know, there's uh, the possibility of having a uh, a piece of their body that has not been completely destroyed. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. It's EWTN's Open Line, Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. If you enjoy EWTN bookmark, bookmark Briefs with Doug Keck, you can receive uh, weekly emails that includes that short little bookmark, bookmark brief 
email. It features an author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. We have Father John Trujillo in the hot seat. Ready to answer your questions on this Open Line Monday. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Denise in Mechanicsburg, PA, listening on Holy Family Radio. Denise, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi, Father. Apparently, I'm not the only Denise from Mechanicsburg who calls in, but this is my first time. I wanted to actually thank you, Father. I said um, it was about 15 years ago, but my guess is it's more like 20 years ago. You visited, and I want to get choked up here, you visited my father-in-law in the Harrisburg Hospital, and I just want to personally thank you for that because it meant so very much to him. He has since passed away, and it also meant so much to us that you had made that made that visit to him. Well, thank you, and uh, I'll certainly be, uh, be praying for his soul and uh, also for you. God bless you, thank- Denise. Oh, thanks so much. Thank- we- Welcome to the 21st century. 833-288-EWTN. Denise, if you're still listening, sorry for talking over you. Uh, 833-288-3986. Tom writes in, we're told to follow our conscience, but our consciences lead us into error. How can we know what is from God when we use our conscience? Very good question, and it's something that I make sure I cover when I go over the catechism with the seminarians. Yes, we are to follow our conscience, but we are to follow a certain conscience, not a doubtful one. If, there's a, if, you, are a doubtful, if you have a doubtful conscience, you must wait, refrain from doing something until you have certitude. And it needs to be a well-formed conscience. So it's not just, well, this is what I think is good. I need to verify that what is good is good and what is evil is evil, because the first moral principle is do good, avoid evil. So how do I ascertain, is what I'm about to do good and do it, or is it something bad, I must avoid it? Um, We have a wonderful way, a litmus test, so to speak, something uh, to benchmark to see, is my conscience properly formed? So what do I do? I, I look up the Ten Commandments and see, uh, is this a violation of the Ten Commandments? Is this a violation of the natural moral law? Is this uh, something that the Church has solemnly taught or decided upon? So certainly something like uh, the Church's teaching on um, artificial contraception as being immoral, or uh, euthanasia, um, artificial um, uh, fertilization, all these things which would not necessarily be specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments or in the natural law flow from that. And also then looking at, uh, if, if there's any further doubt, what good moral people that I respect and, and uh, look up to, what do they have to say? So it's not just me by myself uh, saying, okay, I'm fine with that. No, I need to form this properly in accord with divine revelation, in accord with magisterial teaching, and then also uh, get some... Um, feedback 
from people that I regard as being moral and upright. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Wade wants to know if there's a book that explains the readings chosen for the liturgy. Uh, well, there's um, there's a number of things available out there. Um, there's the... Um, the Collegeville uh, Press has uh, a commentary. Uh, there's a lot of books that you can find uh, which are based on the lectionary itself. Uh, tells you which those which what the readings are. Um, if you're into electronics, uh, digital versions, there's something called um, Verbum, which is the Catholic branch of of Logos, and they have the Roman Missal. They also have the Catholic lectionary, they have Catholic commentary, so that you can uh, see what the uh, readings uh, have been uh, interpreted. Um, there's not one source, though, that tells you, which unfortunately I tried to find, why they selected a particular reading for each day. Uh, that was something that was uh, done uh, in Rome and also at the national level, but there's not a book right yet. I think there, it ought to be somewhere done properly so that it explains why these particular readings, but they wanted to, uh, on the weekdays, cover as much scripture as possible. So we have what we call a two-year cycle. Um, the even years are year two, the odd years are year one, and so in the course of all the weekdays, it would cover all good portion of the, um, past, or the, of the Bible. And then on Sundays, it's a three-year cycle, A, B, and C, uh, and then that that rotates, uh, you know, chronologically that way too. So uh, you you can find what the readings are. You can find what they uh, are interpreted to mean, their application, the, the the background. But finding out why a particular reading was for a particular day, um, I I don't think anything exists right now. Uh, Jake is in Des Moines. He's a first-time caller listening on Iowa Catholic Radio. Jake, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hey, Father. How's it going? Great. Thanks for calling. Yeah, uh, I have a question. Um, my brother kind of told me this, that uh, faith and, and belief are, are actually like opposite words. Um, and I was kind of trying to get your take on it. He said that uh, faith is, you know... Is like trust, you know, like you have, um, I, I forget what he said, honestly, uh, but he, he was saying that they're, they're kind of like the opposite. One is like more like trust and, and one is, is action, you know? So like, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. No, I'm glad you asked. They are clearly uh, brothers because he's already forgotten <laughs> what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is a good analogy, though, that they're brothers, because faith and reason are not inimical. Uh, they're not diametrically opposed to each other. Um, but the way I like to phrase it is that uh, faith is believing what you cannot see. Uh, reason is understanding what is there. And so when you say, I understand uh, that there is a God, I understand that two plus two equals four, that's different from saying, I believe in the Trinity. Um, the belief in the Trinity does not defy reason, it's above 
our human reason. Our reason is limited. It, just in the same way, even as a computer can only do so much, it's limited by its memory, by the, uh, the space of its hard drive, by the speed of its processor, and most importantly, by what information was put into it. It's limited. Uh, whereas all truth uh, emanates of, um, directly from God. So you've got the eternal truth, you have revealed truth, which we uh, believe in faith and we know it through theology. We have rational truth, which we use our mind, our intellect to ascertain. And then we have empirical truth uh, that we learn through science, by observation, experimentation. So it's not that faith and reason are opposed to each other, it's just that faith is above reason, and it's in the same way that uh, as a little child is growing up and becoming an adult, there are a lot of things that they don't understand, but they take interest because mom or dad or the teacher has told them this. But, you know, how many kids understand nuclear fission, okay? Uh, but you believe that, well, yeah, here's a, a power plant, and it's, you know, there's somehow that science has figured out how to, you know, create electricity by the use of the atom. I don't have to understand nuclear uh, fission in order to appreciate uh, the things that can be done with it uh, any more than I need to uh, understand all the intricacies of the of the biology of how the human body works um, I take it on trust on those who know about it but there's certain things that even medicine and science are limited in knowing so faith is something that's above reason but it doesn't contradict it and I would say there's a wonderful uh, encyclical letter uh, John Paul II wrote uh, Fides at Ratio, Faith and Reason, and I would highly recommend that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. James is in the great state of Georgia listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. James, you're on with Father Tregilio. Hey, Father. The uh, question I have for you is uh, I, was, uh, I was asked by a family member who was married in the church uh, for me and my family to participate in uh, what they're basically calling like a renewal of vows, but it's not going to be in the church. Uh, it's not going to be like a priestly blessing or a mass or anything like that. It's essentially just going to be like a party with friends who weren't able to come to their church wedding, but now after the fact, a couple years later. And my kind of thoughts on it were that because in marriage you give the sacrament to each other, uh, that wouldn't really be acceptable to, like, repeat the sacrament. And it would also be sort of scandalous and frivolous, like with the sacrament of matrimony. Um, and so I told them I can't, I can't really participate in that. Am I right or wrong? Okay, well, this is a, a fine uh, distinction that, that needs to be made. I'm glad you, you called to ask this question, because certainly it would not be uh, allowed, it would not be proper, it would not be valid if somebody were to actually do their vows uh, a second time. Because I know sometimes people get married uh, in church, and then they want an outdoor wedding, and the church wouldn't let them do it, so they got married by a priest inside, and then they want to do the vows all over again outside and pretend like you know this was the first time. That's not permitted. But renewing your vows is something completely different. It is not a sacrament. Uh, the blessing would be a sacramental but it would not be required that a priest or deacon be there. But what has to be made clear that this is a renewal of one's uh, marriage vows. In the same way that the priest, we renew our, 
our vows of respect and obedience to the bishop uh, every year at the Chrism Mass. Uh, a married couple can renew their vows. Optimally, it would be better in church at Mass to get the priestly uh, or the diaconal blessing. But if they were to renew their vows and make it very clear that I renew uh, my vows of, to be true to you in good times and bad, sickness and health, uh, rich or poor until death do us part, as long as it's made very explicit this is a renewal, um, it's not a, a problem. But you don't want to uh, bring in some other uh, minister because then that is going to confuse people. So if they're going to renew their vows outside of church, then they just need to do it by themselves. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Pat, a first-time caller in the great state of Missouri, listening on the EWTN app. Pat, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Father John. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. I'm a, a recent convert. I've just been in a year, but I studied for four years before I came in, and I've I've been a Christian for well over 60 years, but my question is, because of all this controversy, and I have read, you know, I, I, I listen constantly and read constantly all this literature about the Catholic Church and listen to different bishops and so on, and I know that some are very liberal on some things and some very um, conservative, and my question is, if a priest, and this came because you, you mentioned about the conscience, if a priest is in a diocese where he doesn't agree with what his bishop is doing, can he change to another diocese? Okay, um, that's a good question. Take a deep breath, and, Father John. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll be very careful about it. <laughs> uh, canonically speaking, that means, according to canon law, uh, a priest may ask uh, for what we call excardination to leave the diocese he was incarnated or he was ordained into, and then excarnate from one diocese, incarnate into another. But it's not an easy process because church takes seriously the fact that when the man was ordained, he put his hands inside the bishop's hands, and he promised respect and obedience not only to that bishop but to his successors. And so there's this canonical moral and spiritual bond between the priest and his bishop, but it can be done. Uh, it, it just cannot be done for frivolous reasons. And even if the the priest doesn't like the bishop, that's you know something you got to put up with. Uh, the bishop might not like the priest. <laughs> you know he has to put up with that. But if there's very serious now, what often happens is when a priest, mom or dad, is seriously ill and they need some extra care, uh, bishops will often let them go on a leave of absence. Uh, or be on temporary duty outside the diocese, but in some cases they'll actually let them change dioceses uh, so they could be closer to home. Uh, but it has to be for serious reasons. Um, if there's a difference of ideology or philosophy, uh, just something that you have to, you know, live with. Uh, but if it's something that's ongoing and the priest feels I just am not able to to do my work here 
and it has to be very serious. He can ask, and certainly there's some little loopholes in there if a priest has been for five years consistently in another diocese. Uh, he has more of a chance of asking uh, to switch over to the other diocese from his original. But because, you know, each diocese needs their priests, even the ones that are on loan outside, like, for instance, I'm on loan from Harrisburg working in the Archdiocese of Baltimore at, at the seminary in Emmitsburg, uh, but I'm still part of the Harrisburg diocese. Um, I originally came from the Erie diocese as a seminarian, but then I switched and then uh, became a part of the Harrisburg Diocese. So it can be done, but it's a process, and they want to make sure that this isn't done uh, too, um, you know, imprudently or rashly, uh, but it can be done. You have to have serious reasons. Does that help, Pat? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, I just, you know, I got to thinking about this more and more, and it's just something up. And then when you said about conscience, with one of your other questions, I just, you know, I feel sorry for a, a priest that is under a bishop that he, and I, you know, I, I don't know anything personally about my priest or my bishop, but, um, you know, if it, um, if they could possibly do that, because I can't imagine um, having to live under that. Yeah. See, the other problem, too, is what happens when that bishop's gone, when he retires or passes away? Um, you know, it's one thing to leave while there's a particular bishop, uh, but once you switch diocese, you can't switch back because now there's a new bishop and you like him better than the other one. It's like, I think it's possible, but not too easy if you want to switch from the Navy to go to the Army. Uh, it could be done, but it's very difficult, and you can't go from one and then back to the other and then flip-flop. So it's something to be taken very seriously, uh, but like I said, it can be done uh, under certain circumstances. God bless you, Pat. We appreciate the question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Time for your calls at a couple of open lines at 833-288-3986. All right, I'll give you one that's a little uh, easier to handle here, Father. <laughs> uh, Ellen right. would like to know, was Jesus capable of sin? No. <laughs> that's the easy answer. Um, he's He was incapable of sin because, one, He's a divine person. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. So although he's got a human nature, he also has a divine nature. And it's one divine person. And sin is going against the will of God. And since he is God, he can't go against himself. It's just ontologically impossible. And even in his human nature, okay, which was uh, hypostatically united to uh, his divine person, his human will, well, free, okay, was always united, connected to his divine person. So again, he was incapable of sinning because he would, in a sense, negate himself. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil didn't try to tempt him, but it would be impossible for him, uh, ontologically speaking, philosophically speaking, for him to commit sin because, you know, he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, and sin is going against the will of God. So uh, his two wills were always in harmony, just as his two intellects were were connected, united uh, with the um, the divine person. But I know some movies and some crazy theologians. Uh, when I was in the seminary, they try to make us think, well, he didn't, but he could have. Uh, remember, Saint Paul said, "Like us in all things, but sin." So uh, it was impossible for Jesus to sin, and that doesn't take away from his human nature, 
Okay, so a lot of times people say, well, if he didn't have the possibility of sinning, was he truly human? We're talking about nature as distinct from personhood. Um, Matthew is watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, why isn't Thomas Akempis a saint, despite his contribution to the <laughs> spiritual life in his great classic? Well, he might be a saint. I mean, we can't say he's not in heaven, uh, but to be a canonized saint, that's a decision the, the Roman pontiff, the bishop of Rome, the pope makes. And the saints are not limited to only those that are canonized. But uh, if a particular person is not canonized, it doesn't mean that they're not upstairs uh, in, with the beatific vision. Now, some of, the, some of the people who lived very holy, virtuous, saintly lives and were not canonized. It wasn't because they were deemed bad or evil. It's just that there weren't enough. There wasn't enough evidence. Uh, certainly, you know, one of the requirements is that after their death, there be at least two miracles: one for beatification, one for uh, canonization. But that has to take place after their death. And they also look at all the things they've ever said or did. They wrote um, things that were said about them when they they go through the the cause of canonization. Uh, there used to be, they don't have any more, but they called the devil's advocate was a priest who looked for evidence against them, sort of like, uh, you know, like the district attorney would uh, try to find uh, evidence uh, for the, the accused. They don't do that anymore. It's not adversarial. Uh, it's more of a, a summary of evidence. But uh, just because someone's not canonized a saint should not be interpreted that they're not in heaven. And in the same way, when they took St. Christopher off the Roman calendar, he didn't get thrown out of heaven. We're not saying he never existed. Uh, we're just saying that there wasn't enough corroborative evidence to prove that he existed in a particular time. And uh, so Thomas Akempis might be up there. Um, I know some of his writings were maybe a little bit amb ambiguous. Uh, again, that's not going to say that you don't deserve to be in heaven, but sometimes the writings make things a little bit more uh, difficult in, in making that assertion. Next stop for us is Western New York. Janet is watching on YouTube today. Janet, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, Father. How are you? Fine. Thanks for calling. Um, I have a question for you. Um, we had a situation with the family that um, just devastated our family. We lost everything due to some due to a relative's bad uh, doings. Um, millions of dollars in debt, uh, lost everything that we had, and it has, you know, it's been about, it's been more than two years, so we have worked on uh, forgiving and forgetting, and, but one of my relatives doesn't feel that she has any responsibility in that. Um, my husband and I, uh, we took a lot of heat for everything. Uh, that stuff that was not our fault, and um, I guess uh, how do you deal with how do you heal from all that? I guess is what I'm asking, and how do I get that other relative to see that she really needs to ask for forgiveness? Yes, well, um, all you could do for the relative is give good example because no one's going to be. Uh, argued or uh, debated into this. Um, you can't force someone to forgive, but you can show them that it is possible. We just had the wonderful feast the other day of St. Maria Goretti. Uh, she was 12 years old when uh, Alessandro uh, Serenelli uh, stabbed her to death. He was 20 years old. 
she was 12. He tried to rape her, and she resisted, and he stabbed her to death. She forgave him before she died in the hospital, and he served uh, like 29 uh, years of a 30-year sentence. He wasn't 21 at the time, so he didn't get life, but he spent 30 years uh, in prison, and he went to the home of Maria Gretti's mother and asked for her forgiveness, and she said, if Jesus Christ and my daughter could forgive you, um, Alessandro, I must forgive you as well. Uh, that's very heroic. But for some people, that will take a little bit more time and effort. It's the goal that we all want, and I would say it's not forgive and forget, because that's not really, it's not in Scripture, but to forgive is. If I forget, then I don't need to forgive, because I don't know what it is that happened. The fact that we don't forget, uh, but we can forgive, to turn the other cheek, as Jesus said. Uh, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and this is as he's dying on the cross. Um, it's not easy. It's the most difficult part of our Christian faith. It's even more difficult than bearing our cross. And yet he wants us to at least try, to keep trying, to never stop trying to forgive. And some people can forgive a little bit uh, quicker than others, but I, I give you credit and your husband for doing that. But you're not going to you know, be able to coerce or convince your relative to do the same unless they see that this is the better uh, path. They see that this makes you uh, people who are, um, you know, faith-filled, and that you're more at peace with yourselves because you were able to let it go. Because that's basically what forgiveness is, is I'm letting go. I don't need uh, retaliation. I don't need revenge. Coming up tomorrow on More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck, the topic is blowing things up. Are you or is someone you know struggling with anger? We'll help you get past the explosions and find the path to peace. That's More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN. We head now to Rhode Island. Mary Ann is in Rhode Island watching us on YouTube. Mary Ann, you're on with Father Trujillo. Hi. Hi, Mary Ann. Um, What's your question today? Yes. I was saying that um, I have a church, it's maybe 20 years old, and so it's modern inside. You walk into church through the doors, and in the center of the aisle is a big uh, holy baptismal font with holy water in it, and that's where you bless yourself. There's no other, uh, that, you know, holy water fonts anywhere else in the church. But underneath this big bowl is like a cabinet, and it's inside, I assume, that there's like a spigot and a, you know, knobs to turn the water on and off or whatever. So it's constantly being filled. But I was wondering, how do they bless the water for people to bless themselves when they come in? Do they do it every week? Do they, does Father do it every day? Do they bless the ground that the water comes out of uh, through the pipes? I I don't understand. And do they use holy salt? Yes, um, that's an excellent question, and uh, I don't have metaphysical certitude, but I have a guess. Uh, I was at a parish where they did have one of these contraptions that had a, a flowing baptismal font. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't inside the church. It was in the, the, the narthex in the front of it, uh, 
before you enter the church proper into the nave. But um, my understanding was that most of these cases, it's re uh, recirculated water, so that when the water is blessed, it's just being recirculated. So it doesn't go stale if it just sat there by itself. Um, I don't think it's fresh water no, it, it, coming yeah, out of the spigot. Not to be too crass, but it's like a swimming pool. Yes. It's just being recirculated. Uh, and if that's the case, then it's still blessed. If it was something where it's continuously fresh water, um, then, yeah, I don't know how you can, you know, you, if, you, I, if I blessed it, it's only the water that's actually there in the bowl that's blessed. It's not blessed in the pipe, so to speak. So I think it's just merely re, re, uh, recirculated water. But uh, um, I'm not too fond of these things because uh, they could be dangerous. Um, I know that some liturgists wanted to say, oh, no, you need to have this conspicuous uh, I like the old-fashioned holy water fonts because they're more practical, and you know uh, people are not going to um, sort of get uh, grossed out because uh, you know when you're if you're baptizing babies by immersion in that you know their whole body's getting dipped in there um, as opposed to just someone's finger. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. We head now to West Tawakoni, Texas. Michael is in the Republic of Texas today, um, listening to us on Guadalupe Radio. Michael, you're on with Father John. Actually, it's uh, Sirius one thirty, and it's uh, West Tawakoni. Uh, Father John, I'd just like to give a quick praise report uh, about the movie um, uh, Sound of Freedom. Um, I just got done watching it, and um, it's incredible what uh, uh, Mr. Caviezel has and the other actors and actresses have done uh, with this movie. It's, um, um, I mean, you know, there are some movies that are based on the truth, but then they put their own editorial comments in it. This is just fact. I mean, one after the other after the other, and it's just um, mind-blowing. Yeah, I'm, I'm very... Um, uh, I haven't seen the film yet myself. I definitely am going to. I met uh, Jim Caviezel in, in California this past uh, Holy Week this year uh, at a friend's house, and he was telling us about the movie, and he's very passionate about it, and he said this is uh, a difficult topic, but it's something that's very important because people just don't realize, you know, the, the, the child sex slave trade is going full steam, and you don't hear a lot about it, and it's something that needs to be addressed, and, you know, he's got the wherewithal and the passion, and I say it's a difficult movie. It's not something you're going to take the family to see, but I say adults need to be aware so that, you know, we can hopefully do something, have laws uh, enforced or changed so that this kind of stuff stops. Thanks, Michael. We appreciate that report today. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Alfred is watching us on YouTube today, and he wants to know, why does the priest add two drops of water into the wine, and why can't it be less or more, and what is the significance <laughs> of the mixing of the water and the wine? Okay, well, it's not required that there be two. <laughs> um, the old rubrics were just one. In fact, 
uh, they had something made up a, a while ago that you don't see anymore. It's called a scruple spoon. It's like that tiny little spoon you see sometimes people have when they have a little um, a special salt, uh, like one of these Himalayan salt things, and you don't want to put a lot into the food. So it's a tiny, tiny spoon. Uh, they used to use that, but we're not that scrupulous <laughs> anymore. Uh, but a one drop or two is all that's required, and they don't want you to put more, ever more than uh, 50% of water because then uh, it's, you can't consecrate it. It has to be substantially wine. And so if you add more than, than 50%, you're going to change the character of what's in the chalice. Now, the few drops, okay, uh, they're symbolic. Uh, and if the priest doesn't put it in, it's still valid material, but it's illicit. He's supposed to put that in there because that's what the rubrics say. And so it's a sign of humanity and divinity. Um, you know, we are mingled with, with Christ by receiving Holy Communion. Uh, we become what we consume, in a sense. And so the, the drop of, of water can represent uh, humanity, human nature, uh, being united with divinity. Uh, St. John Chrysostom talks about the divinization of, of humanity. Uh, Jesus, in his hypostatic union, is true God and true man. Um, there is no uh, ceasing of those realities, so that uh, in, literally in Jesus, his, his humanity is not blended into and is no longer recognizable. He's still always God and man. He's human and divine. Uh, but in the chalice, that's a, a symbolic uh, act. Now, in some of the Eastern Catholic churches, especially the ones that uh, were in cold parts of the world, uh, like the Byzantine churches, they would uh, add a few drops of hot water uh, to it. One, the practical point was to make sure uh, nothing froze, but also uh, because the, the blood of Christ literally when he was alive would be warm. Uh, so that's part of their tradition. In the Latin rite, uh, we just use regular tap water at room temperature. Uh, James is another first-time caller in the great state of Ohio, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. James, you're on with Father Trujillo. Oh, hi, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, the question I have, or it, it's basically my understanding that the Catholic Church recognizes the validity of the sacraments in the Orthodox Church, but my understanding is the reverse is not true. And I was wondering if I have a correct understanding of that, or and if so, could you speak to that issue? Okay. Yes, we certainly, as Roman Catholics, we believe that the uh, Eastern Orthodox, like the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, and all the other uh, various Orthodox uh, Christi Christian churches have valid sacraments, all seven they have valid holy orders, they have valid Eucharist. Now, in terms of what they believe, it is different among the different um, branches, uh, types of orthodoxy. Um, they will, if for some reason a, a Catholic wants to become Eastern Orthodox, or if a Catholic priest wants to become Eastern Orthodox, uh, they will rebaptize, reconfirm, or reordain. Um, not because out of absolute certitude, but just in case, because some of them uh, consider it dubious. Some actually believe that I'm not validly ordained a priest. Uh, we certainly believe that we are, and we have the evidence to, to support that, because, you know, they broke from us. We didn't break from them. Um, the, the head of the Church, the uh, St. Uh, Peter, uh, his direct descendant is the Bishop of Rome. 
not the Patriarch of Moscow or the Patriarch of Constantinople. Um, so we consider they have valid orders. They're on the fence in some cases. Some, they're definite. They don't think we have uh, valid sacraments. Um, but that doesn't mean that that has any bearing on our perspective because we firmly, absolutely, totally believe that uh, you know our orders are valid, our sacraments are valid. Uh, Mickey would like to know, how do I explain the hiddenness of God to young people or atheists? Okay, well, the, the hiddenness, I think, um, is important because people live, especially today, they're looking for, um, you know, not, not just the mysterious, but uh, for spiritual realities. And we understand, I mean, there's so many people believe in ghosts and things that they cannot see. Um, so it's not incredulous for people to believe that there is things out there that are invisible. I mean, obviously, something like you know gamma rays, you can't see them, but they're certainly out there. Uh, I don't see the molecules of, of uh, air, but I need them to breathe. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to be dead. So I know there's a lot out there in the universe that is invisible. Some of it's invisible because it's not detected by the sense of sight, some of it's invisible because it can't be detected by any of the senses. It's purely immaterial. And so like the human soul, or like angels, uh, or God himself. Um, so it's not a big leap for people to understand or believe that there are things which are not detectable. Some because it's either beyond our measurement, or it's because it's a different reality. Uh, it's what we call the immaterial world as opposed to the material world. And so for people to grasp that, I don't, it's only when you get into someone who is a pure empiricist that if their senses don't, uh, cannot ascertain it, then it doesn't exist. Um, you know, even the Greeks and Romans did not uh, subscribe to that. They certainly believed that there was another realm of in, that's invisible that is just as real as the visible one. And certainly, like when you read Plato and Aristotle, they can show you the rational the rationality of the soul even though it's invisible well thank you on behalf of our host well actually father first would you leave us with a blessing absolutely benedicat vos omnipotens deus pater et filius et spiritus sanctus amen amen on behalf of our host father john Trujillo, our producer michael mccall call screener matt gubensky and our social media maven mr ace mckay I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for uh, for tuning in today to EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes. Until then, God bless.